Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, depending on when you're listening to this. This is Nancy Johnson back again for another segment of Candid COVID Conversations. I'm here along with Kimberly Dowd. Hi, Nancy. Glad to be back with you today. Kimberly and I are attorneys from Littler Mendelssohn, a worldwide labor and employment law firm dedicated to assisting employers not only with litigation, but navigating through all aspects of managing employees and workplace relationships. There has been a lot going on in the past couple of weeks, and I thought we should have a quick conversation here about the American Rescue Plan. But before we get into the details of that plan, we're also today, we're going to talk briefly about Florida's most recent executive order from Governor DeSantis that came out last Wednesday night. And then also a little bit about continued OSHA enforcement of COVID protocols and safety standards. Yes, tackling those three topics would be great for our listeners. Before we get to the American Rescue Plan, which is groundbreaking legislation with lots of parts to it, let's first discuss what's been happening in Florida, particularly with Governor DeSantis' executive order from last week. Nancy, can you shed some light on what employers should take away from the order? Sure, I'll do my best to do that. You know, although we're moving forward with more vaccines in Florida, Florida remains in the very real danger zone for continued transmission of COVID, particularly with that new variant that I heard this morning is going to be the dominant variant within the United States very soon. Last Wednesday, Governor DeSantis made an announcement and then issued a new executive order. The announcement related to a meeting that he had with Florida's Board of Executive Clemency. Um, It was unexpected. Nobody knew this was dropping, but apparently he announced that the the Executive Board of Clemency approved a move to, quote, wipe out COVID-related fines within Florida. The order, meant to clarify the announcement, I believe, relates to fines imposed by local entities, not the state of Florida, but any other entity, any lower entity, upon businesses and people. It states that any fines imposed between March 1st of 2020 and March 10th of 2021, so remember this is being issued on March 11th, so it's just like retrospective. So any of those fines imposed by any political subdivision of Florida related to local government COVID-19 restrictions are, quote, remitted. There's no definition of remitted. It just says that those fines are remitted. On its face, it does not cancel fines, however, imposed on assisted living facilities, hospitals, or healthcare providers. When I read this latest executive order, it was difficult to ascertain really what this means going forward. I understand the order applies to past fines, but it is a bit vague. We generally understand remit means to cancel or refrain from obtaining something. What does remit really mean in this situation? Yeah, that's a a really good question and one that's been posed by a lot of people already and one that has not been definitively answered by the governor's office yet. He has commented generally that he believes local governments have been too heavy-handed in finding individuals and businesses for COVID-related restrictions. And it's clear from past orders that he's issued that he is not a fan of enforcing mask mandates through fines. But we really don't know what remit means. He did not direct repayment of those fines. So if businesses or individuals have already paid fines for not having complied with local mandates, there's no mechanism for those to be actually paid back. All we really know is that if an entity has not yet paid a fine that's already been imposed, it likely won't be able to be collected. At this point, though, as I said, because it's backward facing, the order only talks about fines that were imposed previously. There is no impact on it going forward. So really, it almost it almost feels like there's not a lot of impact on businesses, but it is something that businesses have been aware of and have been asking questions about. So I thought we should go through it. 
Well, regardless of what this Florida executive order says or means, as you recall from our last podcast and of importance to Florida and national employers, on January 21st of this year, President Biden issued his own executive order tasking OSHA with several things, including one, considering whether an emergency temporary standard on COVID-19 was necessary by March 15th, and two, launching a national program enforcement efforts related to COVID-19 on violations that put the largest number of workers at serious risk or are contrary to anti-retaliation principles. Yes, Kimberly, I remember those directives from back in January. And on Friday, last Friday, March 12th, OSHA did issue a a very long name, but updated interim enforcement response plan for coronavirus disease 2019 a memorandum, which emphasizes again OSHA's goal to identify exposures to COVID-19 hazards and address violations of OSHA standards, um, emphasizing again the use of the general duty clause. It also discusses more remote inspections or inspections using video conferencing, um, Zoom, things like that, follow up via telephone for interviews. It's interesting, Nancy. Everything has a long name and and the laws that we're going to be discussing today. So it's it's somewhat amusing. Also on Friday, March 12th, OSHA released its National Emphasis Program for COVID-19. As you and our listeners may know, an NEP is a temporary program that focuses OSHA's resources on particular hazards and high hazard industries. This COVID-19 NEP targets industries like the healthcare industry, animal processing plants, grocers, and restaurants, where employees are at high risk of contracting severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, the cause of COVID-19. OSHA will prioritize on-site COVID-19-related inspections, with inspections related to COVID-19 fatalities getting the highest priority. Uh, OSHA will also conduct on-site follow-up inspections of previously cited establishments. This NEP also provides added focus for retaliation protections. So regardless of these long names and and regardless of what we think Governor DeSantis means to um, be talking about in his Florida executive order regarding local orders requiring maskings, et cetera, it's clear to us that OSHA is still very serious about its enforcement of CDC guidance suggesting masking, double masking, masking over the nose, making sure that there's no face shields, et cetera. That's right. And we expect more OSHA news shortly regarding whether OSHA has determined whether a new temporary emergency temporary standard related to COVID-19 is necessary. In our last podcast, we focused on what a COVID ETS might look like given Virginia's standard. But since Doug Parker, Cal OSHA chief, was part of Biden's transition team, California's proposed ETS, although highly scrutinized, may also be informative. If OSHA issues one at all, since the executive order's deadline of March 15th passed. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on, like I said. So now we've kind of talked about Florida. We've talked about OSHA a little bit, what's going on there. Now let's get back to the American Rescue Plan. I know a lot of individuals have been focused on receiving their stimulus checks. Those are rolling out, the child tax credit, a lot of individuals benefits in that plan. There's some provisions, though, that I think we should emphasize for employers. Remember that while operating in Florida, because of the scarcity of local rules or guidelines for some things like paid leave, et cetera, we default to these federal standards as providing the floor of what employers must do to comply with the law. So there are really two things that impact employers. First, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act's tax credit extension 
and second, the changes to unemployment. And I'd like to start by talking about unemployment in Florida. You know, I've heard from a lot of employers in Florida recently because new unemployment tax rates have skyrocketed for 2021. And that's definitely putting a strain on small and medium-sized employers here. I've seen a few employers' rates jump from 0.1 or 0.2% to over 4 or 5%. Yeah, that that's quite a tax hike, Kimberly. Is that just a uniform tax hike for all employers or, or is it just for people, employers who had a lot of claims last year? Well, all employers have seen a hike of some sort if they were not at the maximum, currently 5.4%. The Florida Trust Fund went from above $4 billion in reserves to under $1 billion in just 2020. So the state has imposed this increase on employers throughout the state. And remember, too, last year, Florida only provided 12 weeks of unemployment, but for any claims after January 1st, 2021, individuals could be eligible for up to 19 weeks. All right, so back to the American Rescue Plan. Let's start with discussing changes to Florida's unemployment scheme and benefits available. Sure. As a reminder, through the CARES Act and the Consolidated Appropriations Act, Congress expanded existing unemployment insurance benefits and created new unemployment insurance benefits through the following three programs. First, the Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation, or FPUC. Second, the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, PEUC. And third, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA. So let's discuss the benefits under the December 2020 Consolidated Appropriation Act's amendment to the CARES Act. All right, so if we can get those acronyms right, Kimberly, I think that we'll all be doing pretty good here. But but let's start with the FPUC that you first mentioned. That's that weekly benefit that individuals receive. So if you remember back in March of last year, you know, and I, I believe it was April really when this all started, or it really came to fruition, became law, that if eligible employees were able to get even $1 of state assistance, they would be eligible for that extra $600 weekly from the federal government. That benefit was federally funded and available beginning March 29th of 2020. That's what was in the original CARES Act starting in March of last year. And then the PEUC, Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, provided for up to 24 weeks of additional unemployment benefit eligibility available through March 14th of this year for individuals who had exhausted unemployment benefits otherwise available under state law. Yep, and then that last one that you said, the PUA, that extended unemployment benefits to certain workers traditionally not eligible. So that's what we think of as the unemployment available to gig workers or in the gig economy, essentially. And that that was, those benefits were also available through March 14th of 2021. Under the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the duration of the PUA benefits for eligible workers was extended for a total of up to 50 weeks. So the CARES Act and the Consolidated Appropriations Act also provided incentives for states to waive waiting periods for benefits and encourage the use of state short-time compensation, or STC, programs. And Florida did follow suit with that and waived those waiting periods, et cetera. So, um, but also as part of the push to get the American Rescue Plan through when it was enacted because of all these deadlines that we just talked about, coming up on March 14th, there was a heavy emphasis on these unemployment benefits. So now each of these three programs described that we just described are now extended through Labor Day, along with a few other changes that we'll describe here. Right, so in the FPUC, the Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation, 
law or program, the rescue plan provides for a supplemental weekly benefit of $300 per week for each week of unemployment between March 14th, 2021 and September 6th, 2021. This is the same supplemental benefit amount that was previously provided under the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So that FPUC, it started at 600, it went to 300, now it's still at 300 again for the extension, right? Right. Okay. So then let's go to the PEUC, which is what you had just talked about earlier. That is the one that extended eligibility for extra weeks. So the rescue plan now extends the extension by providing up to 53 weeks of additional unemployment benefits to eligible individuals who have exhausted the unemployment benefits available to them under their state law. Before the CARES Act, a lot of states capped the duration at 26 weeks. Remember, Florida was capped at 12. The CARES Act provided for 13 originally extra beyond that 12. The Consolidated Appropriations Act provided for another 24 beyond that. So now with this, we're up to, it's extended for another 53. So with the latest extension under this rescue plan, eligible recipients of unemployment insurance benefits might be able to receive for up to 79 weeks of benefits. I bet our listeners didn't think that they were going to have an English lesson about what remit means or a math lesson on trying to keep track of all of these weeks during this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But the final program, the PUA, the rescue plan provides eligible individuals up to 79 weeks of PUA benefits, an extension from the 50 weeks of benefits provided previously under the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Under the CARES Act, the duration of benefits was 39 weeks. Yeah, and and we're not going to quiz our listeners on this stuff. So obviously, if they have any questions, you guys know to reach out to us. But I just wanted to mention, too, though, although not affecting employers directly, for employees, um, although unemployment benefits are taxable, the rescue plan waives federal taxes for the first. It was $10,200 of unemployment benefits that an individual had collected in 2020. And that's only if their adjusted gross income was less than $150,000 a year. Right. And Nancy, the rescue plan also extends other CARES Act provisions through September 6th, 2021, including the incentives for states to waive waiting periods and encourage the use of STC programs. The rescue plan further creates greater incentive for states to waive waiting periods for unemployment benefits than the Consolidated Appropriations Act because benefits paid during a waived waiting period will now be 100% federally funded as opposed to the 50% funding provided under the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Yep, and and I we fully expect the federal government, either the IRS or, or some agency to issue some updated guidance to address the implementation of these unemployment provisions in light of the new legislation. So we're going to keep our eyes on that for the listeners. Okay, so moving to the second major and perhaps most important aspect of the American Rescue Plan for employers, let's talk about what is going on with paid or unpaid sick leave. Obviously, there are a lot of changes with the number of vaccinations increasing and new CDC guidance regarding quarantining and isolation of fully vaccinated individuals. As of March 14th, Florida was at 20.4% of its population with at least one vaccine shot and 11.4% fully vaccinated. So we're getting some shots in arms. Remember, assuming nothing changes with the new variants, we are looking for between 70 and 80% vaccination for that herd immunity. Yep, that's right, Kimberly. And so the new CDC recommendations that came out about vaccinated individuals become even more relevant to employers. A quick review of that guidance 
that new guidance is that fully vaccinated people can refrain from quarantine and testing following a known exposure if they are asymptomatic. So if there is somebody in your workplace that you know has been vaccinated, you do not have to isolate them, exclude them from the workplace. It's still clear and very important that employers listening understand, though, that fully vaccinated people should still continue to follow guidance issued by the CDC, health departments and employers and take precautions in all public settings and including within the employment situation. So unless a workplace setting is 100 percent vaccinated with no visitors, no third parties, which is never going to happen, you need to continue requiring masking and all those other protocols need to remain in place. So vaccinated individuals need not quarantine if asymptomatic. But what about employees who do need to continue to quarantine? Nancy, did any part of the mandatory paid time off requirements get extended with this new law? Other than federal employers, so there's a whole separate section for federal employers, no. There is no mandatory paid time off under the American Rescue Plan. What did the American Rescue Plan do with respect to the provisions of the FFCRA? So... There are certain modifications that will now become effective of April 1st of 2021, and it changes what we had just kind of gotten used to and what we're already starting to see the lawsuits under. Things are going to change once again. So first, the very first thing, it modifies the covered reasons for sick leave. So there's going to be sick leave. It's not mandatory and it's not necessarily paid, but if employers choose to, here are the reasons that employers might be able to get a tax credit. So in addition to the six reasons set forth in the FFCRA, so they're not going away, those are still there, but there's just additional ones. Employers can also receive tax credits if they voluntarily provide leave to employees who are obtaining an uh, an immunization related to COVID-19 or recovering from any injury, disability, illness, or condition related to getting the immunization. So if you want to voluntarily provide time to go get the shot or to recover from some side effect of the shot. A second additional reason is if, if an employee is seeking or awaiting the results of a diagnostic test for or medical diagnosis of, of COVID-19 when such employee has been exposed. That was always kind of a gray area before this, and that's clarified that that should be included now if the employer is going to provide that leave and get reimbursed by the federal government for it. Okay, next, it specifically resets the paid sick leave clock. With respect to employees who previously took 10 days of emergency paid sick leave under the FFCRA, the rescue plan permits an employer to provide such employees with an additional 10 days of leave. Okay, so we know there were all those weird, you know, there were weeks and and everything previously under the FFCRA. So whatever somebody took previously, April 1st, you get a brand new bank of leave. Beyond the additional leave and so resetting the clock and, and adding a couple of reasons for providing the sick leave, the law also provides for an additional emergency family medical leave tax credit expansion. So previously, tax credits taken by employers to cover the cost of providing emergency FMLA leave was only available if the employee was unable to work or telework to care for their child whose school or place or care um, center had been closed or was unavailable due to the public health emergency. Now employers can claim tax credits for emergency FMLA leave arising from any of the reasons set forth in the FFCRA, plus those two that I just described a minute ago. The rescue plan also removes the two-week waiting period on emergency FMLA leave and raises the aggregate cap on emergency FMLA leave from 10000 to 12000 And the rescue plan also provides for new non-discrimination rules. 
It includes new non-discrimination rules for employers that opt to voluntarily provide FFCRA leave and obtain the tax credits. Specifically, the rescue plan disallows the tax credits for any employer who discriminates with respect to leave in favor of a highly compensated employee, as that term is defined in Section 414Q of the Internal Revenue Code, and in favor of full-time employees or on the basis of employment tenure. Okay, and last but not least, the American Rescue Plan also directs the Department of Labor to issue some new regulations and guidance regarding these changes. I think we're all going to need a little bit of that, and, and I expect that we may have some future podcast topics that, that are ripe for the picking here. Before we end, too, I just want to mention that there are also some provisions that affect COBRA, COBRA benefits, and the way that employers have to treat um, individuals who are involuntarily terminated at this time. We'll, we'll, that'll also provide us a little bit of fodder for the future and, and maybe a little um, teaser for next time. I think so, Nancy. And don't forget, we're expecting word on a possible ETS from OSHA. Lots of stuff going on. Well, I think we've probably given everyone enough to think about for today. We hope this episode has been helpful. And on the way out, I just wanted to remind our listeners they can reach either of us via email. You can reach me at kdowd, D-O-U-D, at littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com, or nancy at N-A Johnson at littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com. We're also on LinkedIn, and we're happy to answer any follow-up or additional questions on this or any other COVID-related topics. We will continue to bring our candid analysis your way to help everyone keep moving forward. Remember, it's a new day in America. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.